Section 1 of On Christian Doctrine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Christian Doctrine by Augustine of Hippo. Translated by J. F. Shaw. Section 1. Book 1st. Containing a general view of the subjects treated in Holy Scripture. Argument. The author divides his work into two parts, one relating to the discovery, the other to the expression of the true sense of Scripture. He shows that to discover the meaning we must attend both to things and to signs, as it is necessary to know what things we ought to teach to the Christian people, and also the signs of these things, that is, where the knowledge of these things is to be sought. In this first book he treats of things, which he divides into three classes, things to be enjoyed, things to be used, and things which use and enjoy. The only object which ought to be enjoyed is the triune God, who is our highest good and our true happiness. We are prevented by our sins from enjoying God, and that our sins might be taken away, the word was made flesh. Our Lord suffered and died and rose again and ascended into heaven, taking to himself as his bride the church, in which we receive remission of our sins. And if our sins are remitted and our souls renewed by grace, we may await with hope the resurrection of the body to eternal glory. If not, we shall be raised to everlasting punishment. These matters relating to faith having been expounded, the author goes on to show that all objects except God are for use. For though some of them may be loved, yet our love is not to rest in them, but to have reference to God. And we ourselves are not objects of enjoyment to God, he uses us, but for our own advantage. He then goes on to show that love, the love of God for his own sake, and the love of our neighbor for God's sake, is the fulfillment and the end of all scripture. After adding a few words about hope, he shows, in conclusion, that faith, hope, and love are graces essentially necessary for him who would understand and explain aright the holy scriptures. Chapter 1 the interpretation of scripture depends on the discovery and enunciation of the meaning, and is to be undertaken in dependence on God's aid. There are two things on which all interpretation of scripture depends, the mode of ascertaining the proper meaning, and the mode of making known the meaning when it is ascertained. We shall treat first of the mode of ascertaining, next of the mode of making known the meaning, a great and arduous undertaking and one that, if difficult to carry out, it is, I fear, presumptuous to enter upon. And presumptuous it would undoubtedly be, if I were counting on my own strength. But since my hope of accomplishing the work rests on him who has already supplied me with many thoughts on this subject, I do not fear but that he will go on to supply what is yet wanting, when once I have begun to use what he has already given." For a possession which is not diminished by being shared with others, if it is possessed and not shared, is not yet possessed as it ought to be possessed. The Lord saith, Whosoever hath to him shall be given. He will give then to those who have, that is to say, if they use freely and cheerfully what they have received, he will add to and perfect his gifts. The loaves in the miracle were only five and seven in number before the disciples began to divide them among the hungry people. But when once they began to distribute them, though the wants of so many thousands were satisfied, they filled baskets with the fragments that were left. Now, just as that bread increased in the very act of breaking it, 
so those thoughts which the lord has already vouchsafed to me with a view to undertaking this work will as soon as i begin to impart them to others be multiplied by his grace so that in this very work of distribution in which i have engaged so far from incurring loss and poverty i shall be made to rejoice in a marvellous increase of wealth chapter two what a thing is and what a sign all instruction is either about things or about signs but things are learnt by means of signs i now use the word thing in a strict sense to signify that which is never employed as a sign of anything else for example wood stone cattle and other things of that kind not however the wood which we read moses cast into the bitter waters to make them sweet nor the stone which jacob used as a pillow nor the ram which abraham offered up instead of his son for these though they are things are also signs of other things they are signs of another kind those which are never employed except as signs for example words no one uses words except as signs of something else and hence may be understood what i call signs those things to wit which are used to indicate something else accordingly every sign is also a thing for what is not a thing is nothing at all every thing however is not also a sign and so in regard to this distinction between things and signs i shall when i speak of things speak in such a way that even if some of them may be used as signs also that will not interfere with the division of the subject according to which i am to discuss things first and signs afterwards but we must carefully remember that what we have now to consider about things is what they are in themselves not what other things they are signs of chapter three some things are for use some for enjoyment there are some things then which are to be enjoyed others which are to be used others still which enjoy and use those things which are objects of enjoyment make us happy those things which are objects of use assist and so to speak support us in our efforts after happiness so that we can attain the things that make us happy and rest in them we ourselves again who enjoy and use these things being placed among both kinds of objects if we set ourselves to enjoy those which we ought to use are hindered in our course and sometimes even led away from it so that getting entangled in the love of lower gratifications we lag behind in or even altogether turn back from the pursuit of the real and proper objects of enjoyment chapter four difference of use and enjoyment for to enjoy a thing is to rest with satisfaction in it for its own sake to use on the other hand is to employ whatever means are at one's disposal to obtain what one desires if it is a proper object of desire for an unlawful use ought rather to be called an abuse suppose then we were wanderers in a strange country and could not live happily away from our fatherland and that we felt wretched in our wandering and wishing to put an end to our misery determined to return home we find however that we must make use of some mode of conveyance either by land or water in order to reach that fatherland where our enjoyment is to commence but the beauty of the country through which we pass and the very pleasure of the motion charm our hearts and turning these things which we ought to use into objects of enjoyment we become unwilling to hasten the end of our journey and becoming engrossed in a factitious delight our thoughts are diverted from that home whose delights would make us truly happy such is a picture of our condition in this life of mortality we have wandered far from god and if we wish to return to our father's home this world must be used not enjoyed 
so that the invisible things of god may be clearly seen being understood by the things that are made that is that by means of what is material and temporary we may lay hold upon that which is spiritual and eternal chapter five the trinity the true object of enjoyment the true objects of enjoyment then are the father and the son and the holy spirit who are at the same time the trinity one being supreme above all and common to all who enjoy him if he is an object and not rather the cause of all objects or indeed even if he is the cause of all for it is not easy to find a name that will suitably express so great excellence unless it is better to speak in this way the trinity one god of whom are all things through whom are all things in whom are all things thus the father and the son and the holy spirit and each of these by himself is god and at the same time they are all one god and each of them by himself is a complete substance and yet they are all one substance the father is not the son nor the holy spirit the son is not the father nor the holy spirit the holy spirit is not the father nor the son but the father is only father the son is only son and the holy spirit is only holy spirit to all three belong the same eternity the same unchangeableness the same majesty the same power in the father is unity in the son equality in the holy spirit the harmony of unity and equality and these three attributes are all one because of the father all equal because of the son and all harmonious because of the holy spirit chapter six in what sense god is ineffable have i spoken of god or uttered his praise in any worthy way nay i feel that i have done nothing more than desire to speak and if i have said anything it is not what i desired to say how do i know this except from the fact that god is unspeakable but what i have said if it had been unspeakable could not have been spoken and so god is not even to be called unspeakable because to say even this is to speak of him thus there arises a curious contradiction of words because if the unspeakable is what cannot be spoken of it is not unspeakable if it can be called unspeakable and this opposition of words is rather to be avoided by silence than to be explained away by speech and yet god although nothing worthy of his greatness can be said of him has condescended to accept the worship of men's mouths and has desired us through the medium of our own words to rejoice in his praise for on this principle it is that he is called deus god for the sound of those two syllables in itself conveys no true knowledge of his nature but yet all who know the latin tongue are led when that sound reaches their ears to think of a nature supreme in excellence and eternal in existence chapter seven what all men understand by the term god for when the one supreme god of gods is thought of even by those who believe that there are other gods and who call them by that name and worship them as gods their thought takes the form of an endeavor to reach the conception of a nature than which nothing more excellent or more exalted exists and since men are moved by different kinds of pleasures partly by those which pertain to the bodily senses partly by those which pertain to the intellect and soul those of them who are in bondage to sense think that either the heavens or what appears to be most brilliant in the heavens or the universe itself is god of gods or if they try to get beyond the universe they picture to themselves something of dazzling brightness and think of it vaguely as infinite or of the most beautiful form conceivable 
or they represent it in the form of the human body if they think that superior to all others or if they think that there is no one god supreme above the rest but that there are many or even innumerable gods of equal rank still these two they conceive as possessed of shape and form according to what each man thinks the pattern of excellence those on the other hand who endeavour by an effort of the intelligence to reach a conception of god place him above all visible and bodily natures and even above all intelligent and spiritual natures that are subject to change all however strive emulously to exalt the excellence of god nor could any one be found to believe that any being to whom there exists a superior is god and so all concur in believing that god is that which excels in dignity all other objects chapter eight god to be esteemed above all else because he is unchangeable wisdom and since all who think about god think of him as living they only conform any conception of him that is not absurd and unworthy who think of him as life itself and whatever may be the bodily form that has suggested itself to them recognize that it is by life it lives or does not live and prefer what is living to what is dead who understand that the living bodily form itself however it may outshine all others in splendor overtop them in size and excel them in beauty is quite a distinct thing from the life by which it is quickened and who look upon the life as incomparably superior in dignity and worth to the mass which is quickened and animated by it then when they go on to look into the nature of the life itself if they find it mere nutritive life without sensibility such as that of plants they consider it inferior to sentient life such as that of cattle and above this again they place intelligent life such as that of men and perceiving that even this is subject to change they are compelled to place above it again that unchangeable life which is not at one time foolish at another time wise but on the contrary is wisdom itself for a wise intelligence that is one that has attained to wisdom was previous to its attaining wisdom unwise but wisdom itself never was unwise and never can become so and if men never caught sight of this wisdom they could never with entire confidence prefer a life which is unchangeably wise to one that is subject to change this will be evident if we consider that the very rule of truth by which they affirm the unchangeable life to be the more excellent is itself unchangeable and they cannot find such a rule except by going beyond their own nature for they find nothing in themselves that is not subject to change chapter nine all acknowledge the superiority of unchangeable wisdom to that which is variable now no one is so egregiously silly as to ask how do you know that a life of unchangeable wisdom is preferable to one of change for that very truth about which he asks how i know it is unchangeably fixed in the minds of all men and presented to their common contemplation and the man who does not see it is like a blind man in the sun whom it profits nothing that the splendor of its light so clear and so near is poured into his very eyeballs the man on the other hand who sees but shrinks from this truth is weak in his mental vision from dwelling long among the shadows of the flesh and thus men are driven back from their native land by the contrary blasts of evil habits and pursue lower and less valuable objects in preference to that which they own to be more excellent and more worthy end of section one